premise of these papers is that physicians' documentation in these cases stinks. I may be looking at it, but I might not be seeing it. This is a difficult problem, I think, for emergency physicians. And you knew you didn't really know what you were doing. That's not the field where most doctors like to function. When we started to get nurses specializing in this, it was the greatest day of my life. I think she may have been molested. There are a lot of doctors that freak out. That's very powerful. We separate the forensic from the medical. The nurse sent the child over because she kept on scratching her whatever. What you call it? The whatever? I missed that part of anatomy. That just went right over my head. Really? Hello, welcome to the June issue of Risk Management Monthly. Rick Bucata here. Sitting across from me is Dr. Greg Henry. First, oh. I wanted to basically say you just flew in this morning from beautiful downtown Detroit. Right. Unfortunately, you didn't get upgraded, so it's not good, turning out to be a good day. And you also provide medical care on the airplane. I had to take care of a woman on the plane, but now at least they give you 5,000 miles. Oh, whoop-de-doo. And, and a drink coupon? That's as good as I got any place else for doing this. And Melvis Herbert is also here sitting across from us. You weren't at the last one of these, Mel. You know, no. you were missed. I felt dissed. Disrespect. I get no respect. We, we had nobody to say. Now, let me get this straight. Yeah, you know, Are you saying that? I noticed a significant drop-off in the quality of the tape last yeah, month. Yeah. So yeah. I welcomed our co-host. This is the first issue of our third year of publication. Can you believe that, gentlemen? Holy <laughs> testicle Tuesdays. Yeah. As the, time flies when you're having fun. The first issue of the third year, yes. And the other thing it's that also we, the last issue, it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that we've never, ever done before is that we are recording off-site, off-site in the office of my friend Carrie Caruso. Carrie is our guest host today and is going to be basically leading us through a lot of the topic at hand. The topic at hand being abuse, sexual abuse, child abuse, documentation, legal issues, and those kinds of things. Carrie and I have known each other since 2000 when we at our hospital had a SART program, Sexual Assault Response Team, wasn't that what it's called? That's then? correct. But Carrie now is in her own private practice, and I want to introduce you to her, but first I have to tell you that she's a charter member, I'm reading obviously, okay. of the International Association of Forensic Nurses, which was founded in 1992, and was the senior co-chair of the Sexual Assault Nurse Examiner Council. She took the first certifying exam for this profession in, when was it? 2002. She probably wrote the test. And makes it easier that way. <laughs> and she also just showed us while we're here in her office. She's an author in the book called Forensic Nursing, and she wrote the chapter on testifying for the forensic nurse by Elsevier and Mosby. And so this lady is really into this occupation, this profession, does a lot of independent teaching on it. And the thing that I think is particularly unique is that she does both sides of the aisle. We were talking before we started the recording about most people when they're trained in this, this is about examining women who have been sexually assaulted. The idea is that you're gathering evidence, you're going to be sustaining the case made by the prosecution. But the fact is that most of your work now is on the defense side. Well, the objective of being a sexual assault examiner is not to be on anybody's side. It's to be an objective examiner. You might be part of a bigger picture, but you have to remember that you are objective and your own entity. Gotcha. So you're independent. You function independently, and then 
a hospital calls you, the police calls you, where do you get your referrals? Well, that may be where part of the confusion comes on that we are on a side is because we're usually activated by law enforcement. Once they have a report of a sexual assault, then they call the sexual assault nurse and the sexual assault nurse responds to the location and law enforcement presents with the patient and the law enforcement officer and we conduct our examination. Carrie, I want to make a couple of points here. This is a program which is state-by-state state based, isn't it? I mean, every state has really its own set of laws with regard to what is a sexual assault, how they're to be examined, and some states, like I'm from the state of Michigan, we have a sexual assault kit put out by the Michigan State Police, which we have to use in each of these cases. But we have listeners from all over the United States, and I would kind of point out that it may vary a little bit state to state what has to be done. It actually varies program to program, state to state, county to county. Overall, my classes, for instance, are internet classes, so they're all over the United States and the world. So we try and be as universal as possible in the basic evidence collection but there are variations and one of the reasons is that there are different crime labs in each of these locations and the crime lab might require certain things and the SANE program prefers to collect this or collect that and of course the main thing is to be on top of the newest technology and when things come in and they come out there are things that we have left in the past and sometimes you have to fight for the things that are more modern in the technology as the DNA progresses and how important that might be in some of the tools that we use. But each program can have its own variations and regional nuances. So all of us sitting around here as physicians would say to our fellow physicians, know what your local state and local area requirements are so that we're going to speak in generalities obviously today but there are always fine nuances which you have to know about to make sure that this case is going to stick. That's right, and something that might have been true 10 years ago might not be true today. Right. As you know, I do a little literature review periodically, like only about like 600 journals a month since 1977. And one of the topics I saw in a paper that came out recently, Academic Emergency Medicine, was this paper entitled Randomized Prospective Study to Evaluate Child Abuse Documentation in the emergency department by Elizabeth Gunther and colleagues. And I scanned that paper, and the premise of these papers is that physicians' documentation in these cases stinks. Everybody, that's the assumption. Do you agree with that in general? You don't have to use the word stinks. <laughs> Let's be fair, Rick. Let's say it is highly variable. That would be a fair statement, I think. It is highly variable, and I think perhaps they might be unaware that this is a case that is going to be decided by the courts rather than an x-ray or some sort of other medical procedure at the end. In other words, when a patient comes in and says they've fallen off a ladder, I've hurt my arm, by the time they leave the emergency department, we're going to know if they have a fracture of their arm. We may not know if the latter story is true, but at least we're going to know that the arm is either fractured or not fractured. In a sexual assault case or a sexual abuse case, we're not going to know the complete findings of that and possibly until the end of a trial if there is a trial that's going to take place. And that's what makes this so atypical. This is not the usual medicine that where diagnosis, treatment, done kind of thing. This is about a whole aspect of medicine that most of us don't see very often at all and it is about the legalities associated with these cases and that's why these papers that look at documentation keep on saying, you know, you'd sure help us if you were more aware of what you're doing in these cases, this is so atypical. And 
I got to believe that there are a lot of places in this country, little places in Japip, you know, where there's no sexual assault nurse going to come out and do that interview kind of thing. In fact, that the work falls disproportionately on the physicians in some communities compared to others. That's the reason the state of Michigan came up with its sexual assault kit is because they knew that certain people would not do this very often. And so they wanted to have a checklist of what you went down, how you collected specimens, how they were signed off, who did what examinations, simply because not for those who do it all the time, but those who may do one or two a year, and certainly in small emergency departments, that's the case. But wasn't it the issue, Carrie, too, that even when the doctors followed the kit, they didn't do a very good job in terms of following the rules of evidence, and there's often deficits in their performance, I would say. Yes, that's correct, and that actually is one of the problems with having the emergency department physicians who may have not had any specialized training to know what they're looking at. There are things that we do as nurses and physicians that can't even tell you how many catheterizations I've done, and that involves looking at a vagina, but I may be looking at it, but I might not be seeing it. I start to see it when I'm studying the specialty of sexual assault, and that's when I start to look at the differentials of what is something that might be significant, might not be. Well, and in all fairness, if a single doc is in an emergency department putting through 30 or 40 patients that shift, they just don't have the time that somebody who specializes in this, and that's why they're there, so to speak, they can take the time to look and see more carefully. Well, these examinations from the history and the physical and all of this take hours to perform. And that's why I remember in the old days, prior to having this, you would just roll your eyes when oh. somebody came and said, oh, God, you know, the whole place is going to shut down now. Well, it was absolute dread, yeah, because it took a long time. And you knew you didn't really know what you were doing. Exactly. And you knew that these cases were going to be litigated most of the time, so you were going to have to reproduce this chart in front of a jury of your peers when you really didn't know what you were doing. When we started to get nurses specializing in this, it was the greatest day of my life. Yeah, whenever you have anything where the final arbiter is not the medical committee in the hospital, but the court, that's not the field where most doctors like to function. And they need to understand that sometimes we overreach in medicine. And I've watched some guys go down in flames on the stand because they made suppositions and they didn't understand limitations of what they can and cannot prove by the exam. You're absolutely correct. And actually, to take that one step further is not the fact so much that you dread going to court. It takes a lot of time. But they're not priorities. There's very rarely any physical injury. So these patients sat for hours and hours until somebody either had the time or got the guts to go and try and attempt that examination. So as you say, when nurses said, well, wait a minute, this is right in my scope of practice. And I can take my patient and myself away from that emergency room venue and go out of that emergency room, not get in the traffic of the serious patients that need emergency care, since this patient doesn't need emergency care. And we know how to go to court. We know how to conduct the examination. For the patient, it's an average of two to two and a half hours. For the nurse, it's probably an average of about four and a half hours. When I leave my house, I know I'll probably be gone because of drive time and everything, around six hours. So this is a big burden on a physician to be able to find time 
and not be interrupted. So in the olden days, that's what happened, is that we set up the room, we took the interview from the patient, we collected all the equipment that we needed, we had the forms available, we took most of the evidence, the doc would run in, do a speculum exam, collect some internal vaginal specimens and run out, and he would sign his name or she would sign her name to the paper, not really knowing what had been going on. Yeah, there's another dimension here too, and I think that if I had to look over all the sexual assault cases that I've seen in my 35-year career, the ones I hate are when mother comes in and says, this child was at dad's house. The family is separated. Now the child is an instrument in the fight for control between this man and this woman. And she says, the child was at the dad's house. He has funky friends. I think she may have been molested. And I mean, I don't know what other physicians think, but oh, as well, soon as I hear that, what we say, well, I crumble intellectually when that comes in, because I know it's going to be a difficult exam on a child who's never had an exam like this before. This is a difficult problem, I think, for emergency physicians in general. And I don't think that people are aware that this happens much more frequently than they would even imagine. And it doesn't have to be sexual. I mean, I've seen them. Sunday night. When do they come in? They come in Sunday night. Why do they come in Sunday night? Because that's when the weekend visitation thing is over. So mom brings the kid in because dad brought the kid back Sunday night with some kind of illness. And you really believe that they're just trying to build the case record after record after record, you know, to show that this father is negligent and non-caring. Unrelated to sexual matters, this this kid's sick and you didn't take care of him. Look at what you did. In all fairness, I've had these same fights going the other direction where a father has brought the child in oh, yeah, I agree. Uh, because mother's new boyfriend <clears throat> is in the house. All kinds of these things take place. And I, I don't think the average citizen understands how often these manipulative games between men and women are played out through a child. And I weep for those children. I mean, I think this is an awful event. One of the things that I would like to say as a sign before we get further into this is that When it was first presented to our hospital that we were going to do a sexual assault response team, it was like, you know, this is not in my backyard kind of thing. It's like putting the prison into your hospital. It's like the concern was all of our doctors are going to be dragged into, we're going to be seeing all of these cases, and it was like, it was going to be a nightmare. So in the beginning, I was uninformed and not too thrilled. But once it was clear that how this thing was going to work, It was the best thing that our hospital did in terms of a program for the community, hands down, in terms of meeting the needs of the community. It didn't involve the doctors at all. My name was on the bottom of all of those standing orders or whatever they call them now. What do they call them? Protocol. Protocols. Medical protocol. My name was on the bottom of all that stuff. But frankly, none of our doctors ever was called in on any of those cases that I was aware of. And it was a good thing to do. So if that's coming up in your hospital see the bigger picture it worked out absolutely terrifically for us well one of the things that's interesting about that our program pretty much worked as ideally as any program can and what we did is we separate the forensic from the medical oh I was also going to add state to state to state whether your state is a mandated reporting state will affect how the program works but what we do is separate the medical from the forensic so in our hospital we created a different code number for the sexual assault patient who by EMTALA does not have to go through the emergency department. So that kind of an issue was kept separate and they were registered directly to the SANE program. 
and then if that patient required medical care, they were either registered again through the emergency department, or if I found something during the examination, I would send them to the emergency department. In California, we don't routinely collect STI specimens along with the forensic exam. Our focus is physical well-being and forensic. So that would be a separate issue as well to make that medical and forensic differentiation. Okay, so the premise was we don't do very well in terms of documentation. This study was an attempt to improve doctors' documentation. It's 14 emergency departments in Utah and five of the hospitals. They gave them a one-hour class 45 minutes, slides, the whole kit and caboodle. Another hospital, they had three one-hour classes that were much more extensive. Uh, it wasn't the same thing over and over, over, over a certain period of time. And then the remaining hospital was a group of hospitals with the controls where they did basically nothing. And they had a group of abstractors look at 1,500 records of kids, and they teased out 26 charts in which there was a possibility of child abuse, and they were able to find no improvement in the documentation despite these varying degrees of effort to do better. I'm a little disappointed that that was the case, and that's what the paper said. I don't know if you could say either way. Years ago, where I was the chief of the department, we sat down with the prosecutor and looked at various problems which we had with those records. And the single biggest problem for doctors was they didn't want to just stick to the facts. They've got to put down what they actually saw and make no decisions one way or the other what caused it because you don't know sometimes in most cases as Carrie pointed out I bet in less than 10% are there physical findings of interest that really need medical attention we just don't see that many and so is a bruise one spot or another is that from this assault could that be old could it been from something else doctors shouldn't wander into supposition on those records Well, this happens with the nurses as well. They realize if that patient was brought in for a complaint of abuse in some way, they become tunnel vision and everything they say has to be related to that abuse. At least you have some open-minded thinking, thinking, is this bruise old? Is this bruise new? And as long as you use that word, I'm very proud of you because this is one of the things that we have to realize when we're documenting these cases is that the simpler language that you use is going to have the biggest effect. And one of the reasons is that if it's a bruise, call it a bruise. If it's a redness, call it redness. What attorney and cop is going to know really what erythema is? It's a nonspecific finding, and there's a hundred reasons for redness as well. So keep your terminology simple and don't editorialize your findings. There may be cute little faces that come in and stories that come in from this person or that person, and don't let that color your documentation. When we're doing the history, Carrie, do you advocate that the doctors write down, patient states that? Well, Greg, actually, I'm glad that you mentioned that because... That is the focus of the next paper, where they're going to tell you what they think you should do. And I'm really interested to see where we all fall in terms of these recommendations, because it's going to get very specifically about it. Because this first paper said we didn't do very good. I found another paper that said, and it was really cool, it said, it's entitled, Let the Record Speak, Medical Legal Documentations of Child Maltreatment. Now, that paper was published in 2006 in Clinical Pediatric Emergency Medicine by Allison Jackson and all from the Children's National Medical Center at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. And they went through, in no uncertain terms, how to do this, because I thought one of my deficits, one of my many, 
is that, and don't get into them, Greg. Yes, Rick. Um, Thank you, Rick. I'm glad my wife's not here. Um, <laughs> we one, don't have that much time on the tape. One of the things I had to acknowledge is I don't recall any special training on how to document these cases, and I wasn't told what are the dangerous spots to be careful in, and then nothing, 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 nothing. So I thought this paper was kind of pretty cool because they're very specific. So I'd like to just go down some of these points, and I'd like you to, if you don't agree with them, Carrie, you got to come in here because I don't agree with some of them, at least I don't think I do. Well, let me start out with one comment. The first thing I see on the first page of this article is I see that someone has described something as a fingertip-sized bruise. You like that, don't you? I do not like that. You said you like bruise. You liked bruise a second ago. The bruise I like. Tell me what I don't like. <laughs> the fact that you have, by that description, implied that it came from a finger, which is usually part of a hand, which is part of an assault. Which is very prejudicial. You're already guiding and suggesting that this bruise might be that. You can use other descriptions, and I hear this in court all the time. Around the country, there are pods that are taught in certain way. And I see fingertip bruises. I see other documentation that looks prejudicial. So that would be something. You can use something else. Well, you know, it's interesting because that just went right over my head. When I read that, I read that. I just figured, well, that's about the size of the bruise. For me, it implied no causality whatsoever. But, but you're right. Zero. You're right. Because what you're trying to do by using that description is estimate the size and the shape of the bruise. Right. Not even realizing how prejudicial that may have been. We can also say that it's a one centimeter by two centimeter area of contusion. Really? Without then indicating that it may have come subtly indicating that it may have come from a hand. Exactly right. Or dime size, (laughs) implying that I'd like to have money for my expertise. (laughs) (laughs) The preamble of the paper, we do a crummy job. I like this one. Children who are abused are three to five times more likely to experience subsequent victimization as adults. Now, you probably are really in tune to that stuff. This is about people who... The way they get affection is basically by being, um, help me out here. I like most of that statement. I don't like statistical statements. And the reason... Five times? uh, Yes. uh, Statistical statements upset me only because when you're talking about something like abuse and sexual assault, the statistics are gathered by something that might have not been substantiated. So the fact of the matter is, is that yes, there's a great deal of people who are abused that... One study showed in 2003 that only 8% of reports to Child Protective Services or by medical personnel. The inference of that being, now see you got the idea about the finger was the cause. I didn't get that. Well, I'm telling you what I think this means. This means that medical personnel are having a high threshold for reporting these cases. They're giving everybody the benefit of the doubt. They think that the implication is here is, is that more of these cases should be reported through the medical system rather than not. I don't think that's necessarily an implication at all, because when you think about it... I'm not implying well today, am I? Yeah, well, <laughs> when you oh, think you're, about, you're just wrong. Most of our time with a child isn't spent in a hospital or with a doctor. It would be perfectly reasonable for more of these to come from a teacher who's with the child all day, a neighbor. All right, all right, I give up. 
All okay, of these things okay, could okay. be. Or another issue is that is that child brought into the hospital for a report of abuse or for a report of something else, and the abuse might be a byproduct that comes out one way or another. So if the child isn't brought into the hospital I'm for sorry, that reason, I'm sorry, you mentioned it. Well, and there's a percentile in there too, which I don't. But no, I mean the truth of the matter is, is that we probably should have. It's interesting. It's that, about our threshold for recognition. Well, that's interesting that that's you would say that because. There are some people that do have a high threshold, and some of them are champions <laughs> of the oh, cause or low. All right, they don't want to let any, no shadow of a doubt slip through this, the comb here. And you and I talked offline about cases where fathers, they're they assumed to be the perpetrators until, or the uncles or whoever they're living with, and how these things can absolutely destroy families. Absolutely, absolutely destroy families. And a family I know went through this and it was hell. But in any case, now let's move on. I don't think anybody's going to be dispute number one. Note the time of the encounter. But please, nobody say anything about that. <laughs> Jeez. Note who is in attendance. Because there's pros and cons. I guess if you have a kid and the parent's there, maybe they'll be inhibited. So, Carrie, what's the story? How do you tactfully deal with this? Because you're more likely to get some interesting stuff if the parents aren't there. Tell us what to do here. Please step outside. Same issues you have with domestic violence and stuff like that. What if it's a minor? What if it's a four-year-old? So? You get him to step outside while you're, and you ask him a quick question? But it's basically the rule you're saying is you need to talk to the patient. I think you need to talk to the patient alone. And also I think that that's very telling on the parent well, might react if you... That's coming Oh, oh I'll but wait. I, <laughs> but what is your recommendation? They have to, you have to talk to the patient. I would. Alone. I would want to talk to the patient alone. And there aren't any laws that say you can't do that. Some people you can have manufacture some good excuses for the parents yep. to go out. Let me say one thing. that In a lot of our hospitals where we don't have somebody like you, Karen, that's probably half the hospitals in the United States, really don't have people at all hours of the day and night who come in. What I frequently tell parents is they make me, in this oh, kind they of situation, uh, they, they make me fill out the suspected child abuse report or whatever it is because sometimes in that setting that we have in the emergency department I'm not sure you always get the best history from the child simply because of the emotion at that time the fact that it's an emergency department I mean I think children are scared in emergency departments I don't think that they always give us what we want well this is probably not going to be the only interview of that child exactly but I'm sure there will be others. All right, here's another one. It is advised to document how the caregiver responds to the disclosure of possible abuse as a sign of are they really, really going nuts or, you know, not too concerned. Now, that's a matter of interpretation. What do you think? I don't even think it's only the caretaker, which is very telling, but it's also the medical personnel. How are they reacting? Are they in horror, or what is their demeanor as well? Are you in agreement that you should record your perceptions of the response? As long as they're not editorialized too much, your perception might be different than the actuality, but certainly if somebody gives you a really hard time and doesn't allow you to speak to the patient by themselves, then that might be something to document. Having someone who's dealt with the death of infants I was gonna... a, a long time, I always tell them that they're so fortunate that the state of Michigan has put aside funds to do the autopsy of these children so that they will know and they can feel comfortable with what happened. The more the family is 
hesitant about the autopsy, the more I'm concerned about the case. And I can't tell you the number of times it's come back when I didn't think it was going to be infanticide, and it was. Another point they say is be attuned to multiple explanations for the same event inconsistencies in the story, those kinds of things. You okay with that one? That's a buzzword that I'm becoming more and more irritated with the longer I do this. Uh, the, uh, I is can the, see that. Well, you're going to get the Mythbuster. Is the consistent with consistent with, but we'll go on with that. Now, that's not a big problem in the emergency department with certain injuries and things, but... Dad said it happened this way, and the kid said it happened that way. You know, all right, well... We have a conflict. Yeah, they are going to conflict, and that's going to be a problem. More specifically in sexual abuse, Abuse, a lot of times what we're left with is, is this consistent with... Well, that's the big finale here. Oh, wow. That's the big finale. I'm jumping ahead. I'm so sorry. When interviewing the child, note whether statements are spontaneous or elicited. Now, would you agree with that? Ooh, well, this is one of the biggest problems with some of the child advocacy interviews and some of the things that happen. Are you leading this child? Are you congratulating the child for the right answer? If I ask you the same question 15 times and you kept saying no, maybe I'm getting the idea that I'm given the wrong answer. So now I'm going to say yes this time. So you want to make sure that you're not being suggestive, you're not leading, you're not expecting a particular answer for a particular question. Well, that's true throughout medicine patients are doctor pleasers that is they'll tell you what you want to hear and so as you probe more they're watching for subtle clues that the nodding of your head or the agreement with what's going on and I agree with you that some of these things can be manipulated certainly all these memory things that came back of abuse 20 years earlier and things like that after intense psychotherapy for 15 years. A lot of that, I think, is highly suspect. Well, I don't think anybody's going to disagree with the next one. They would have liked you to know a little bit about prior injuries, ingestions, illnesses, something that would routinely be put down. Nobody's going to argue with it. You're not going to argue with that, or Carrie. No, I'm not. Thank you for letting go with this. The general rule, if a kid's in more than twice for, like, an accidental ingestion or something like that, that's child neglect if not child abuse, till proven otherwise. Well, that's a good point. The uh, slash abuse slash neglect are considered to be in the same genre in terms of you need to report both. It's much more subtle if the kid comes in, looks like you're starving and got a pot belly and the kid's filthy kind of thing. It's going to be maybe a little tougher to do that, but if this is the fifth time in some period of time where there's smoke, there's fire, the obligation is for the investigation to occur. Well, it's interesting in a lot of states... They don't separate that out. It's abuse slash neglect. Yes. Because sometimes maybe just intensive parenting helpfulness here, suggestion on the part of the state, kind of (laughs) straightens everybody's act out that now they know somebody's watching. And you should actually watch for more hospitals in your area because they're more likely to hospital shop and not visit the same hospital. So if your hospital is getting five visits, you might want to suspect that they're going somewhere else as well. Exactly. The next element deals with specifically uh, sexual abuse cases. They point out, Greg, as you noted, most cases that are successfully prosecuted involve little or no physical evidence. But the things that you want to ask are who, what, when, where, and how. Those kinds of things. The number of times relating to sexual abuse, coercion. Coercion can be physical threats and verbal threats, but it also can be treats and gifts to ensure secrecy. So there's a positive side of that as well. Pain, bleeding, and dysuria. 
how the assault's, assailant's body changed. This is about asking the child about the perpetrator in terms of erections, ejaculations, and good luck. This is an attempt to get more data that suggests that this was legit. And then what happened afterwards? Now, what do you stand on those, Carrie? Well, to begin with, most of the time when you see a child and the allegation is abuse, you're not going to see an acute case. And unfortunately, most of the cases that are brought to the emergency department will be non-acute cases. Which means from the uh, school nurse or something like that. Something that happened two months ago that got disclosed, something like that. If you get an acute case and you find some injury, then well, that's pretty got something to write now but it is kind of difficult in that sense and children are not very good now of course we're kind of limiting this one to the young child like 12 and under let's say but you can expand this if you want. well sometimes things get complicated as far as consent obviously with a child under 12 we don't have a consent issue and one of those major issues is can you tell the difference between a consensual finding and a non-consensual finding and the answer is no so that's another issue. But a young child is not very good about time. So when you say, when was the last time this happened, you're not going to get February 15th. But you might be able to narrow it down if it's near a holiday or near a birthday or some significant event in the child's life, and that might happen. But a common thing that I see written, and I'm not sure how good or bad it is, is sexual abuse by history. Well, that's interesting because they do mention that when sexual abuse is suspected but is not disclosed by the child, indicate the reasons that sexual abuse is suspected. The nurse sent the child over because she kept on scratching her whatever. And what you call it? The whatever? Uh, yes, that's, that's what the I call technic- it. That's, that's, that's what we call it in my house. Okay, <laughs> all right. I missed that part of anatomy. I mm-hmm. <laughs> you want to, it was Mr. Weenie? Mr. Weenie. <laughs> okay. Or Mrs. Weenie. <laughs> We had a very progressive education. Yes, we did. <laughs> Good Catholic upbringing there. Let's go on here. This They said the next one is a little controversial. Questions about prior sexual activity and the age at which an examiner begins to ask about prior sexual activity are considered both controversial topics and should be approached on an individual basis. Do you think it's a controversial topic? No, but that's what I do for a living. No, but we're asking these kids, though. Is that in some way prejudice? You, yeah, I've been having sex since I was nine, doctor. And Well, the thing that you have to remember is the patient is your patient, not the mother, not the father, not the anybody. If we're suspecting abuse in some way, then what we're doing is we're opening an investigation. So the only people privy to this information at this point will be your patient and the investigative bodies. So it is not controversial. This is a question you need to ask. And if there's not anybody that's going to follow up with this, that might be integral as to the reaction or the perception of the patient. And if they clam up on you, then, I don't know, we're kind of like shooting here with no target. But it might be an important thing to know, depending on what the circumstances are. It's been my experience that with the young teens, I get a father, they come in Sunday night. She disappeared Friday night. Right. He's got two questions. Mm-hmm. Is she doing drugs? Mm-hmm. Did she have sex? Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's the answer? Yeah, sure, probably. But let me sit down and talk about this. The family occasionally wants things done which I can't do. Oh, now, you mean like virgin checks? Yes, exactly. <laughs> or they expect, number one, that I could necessarily tell by looking mm-hmm. when I have to dissuade them that that's actually true. What kind and, of doctor are you? And secondly, if you've got a competent teenager 
for me to force an exam on them is probably assault. Yes. And it's not probable. It is assault. And I think that the families don't recognize all the time that I cannot be the arbiter of all their family problems and situations. And if they think I can tie their child down and do all these various things, very serious problem here. Most often across the board, a child or a person 12 years old and older can give their own consent regarding reproductive health, sexual assault, health, that sort of thing. And and that's state by state again. And the state of Utah differs from the state of Michigan. But I think that this 12 or 13, whatever whatever their age is, is probably about right. That's right. And that is going to annoy the parent who thinks that they, my scenario is that they got caught. Right. You know, I don't know why they don't pick better places, but they got caught. So we don't even know if we have a crime actually, because if they're fooling around, they certainly can fool around. But it's usually the parents' interference. And of course, I'm not known as the biggest peacemaker, but the fact is, is I want to make sure that before they leave my office, which depending again on the circumstances, whether or not an exam will be done, if it comes to light that this is the motive for the examination, probably won't be done. However, I want to make sure that there's some sort of peace between the parents, because I want to make sure that they leave on a basis and they sometimes are annoyed with me because it's none of the parent. If I did the exam and if I saw what I saw, I couldn't tell you anyway. Exactly. And again, what makes you think that we can all tell that you know something's happened or something hasn't. We so, can't. Yeah. So for the purposes of these examinations, a twelve year old or thirteen year old, depending on where you are, is considered an adult. Not you so don't much. have to disclose to their parents. Exactly right. Exactly. They have their own set of rights as a person in that age group. And by the way, each of our docs should again remember they need a copy in their little rule book in the emergency department as to what the state law says because that's not true. 12 is not the law, I believe, in the state of Utah. It may be in the state of California. I don't know what it is, for example, in Oregon. And I think these are the kinds of things which the doc ought to know because be careful where you wander here. They can give, uh, they have the perfect right to seek care without parental permission for things that have to do with sexual abuse, drug abuse, all these sorts of things. Their rights are protected under the law. That's right. And they can give their own consent for the examination, which again is purely voluntary. So even if there is a case that say is a big case that the police would love to have an examination of that patient and she says no or he says no, no exam is done. I think that's a really powerful statement to say in that specific clinical scenario where dad or mom wants to know what's been going on over the weekend to be able to say, even if I did it, even if I could force your daughter or son to do this exam, I can't tell you anyway. For That's sure. very powerful. That disarms That, that is really going to piss them off. <laughs> Just, that would be it. Let's take a little aside here. You often have parents asking about doing drug tests on kids. And the kids often say, sure, go ahead, do it. I do it. If they want to do it, and the kid says it, and the parents say it. Now, there's all kinds of caveats about if they ate a poppy seed bagel and all that. I don't go through that stuff, but saying, you know, this is not a particularly very accurate kind of process. But if you want it, I will do it. And frankly, I do it. Now, where do you stand on that? I'm perfectly willing if the child, if we've got a 13 or 14-year-old whose family has brought them in and said, I think he's doing drugs, and no, I'm not, and all the usual fight that's going on, I'll say, well, listen, why don't we settle this with a test. If the child volunteers the urine for this test, perfect. 
But I'm not going to fight with a 14-year-old. Oh, no. I'm not going to assault them for a sample when all we have to assume is if they don't want it taken, the family still has a problem. Yeah, well, that's the key thing. This doesn't fix the problem. There is a bigger sociological problem between the adults the and the kids. In the ER. It fixes it for you right at that second, <laughs> okay. but it doesn't help the kid. It doesn't right. help this family that they just are not communicating with their kids. This doesn't fix the problem. That's what we teach. It's like, and this, this is, is a bad place to go. Parents demanding tests on their kids, whether it's for drugs or whether it's for STDs or whether it's for whatever it is. Or That's CT a slippery slope to yeah. go down. Exactly. Just because you want it doesn't mean you're getting it. And this is very important, what you said. And that's why I try and incorporate some sort of a peacemaking effort. There are patients that come in that actually, without knowing in the end about whether they were consensually having sex or sexual assaulted or whatever, this still can be a divider in the family. And you can't see the patient just for what they came in for, that was an awkward sentence, and not and send them out the door without some sort of element of safety that they go home. I've had mothers that say, well, now that this has happened, we're canceling your quinceanera. And I'll take a, a whole long time and sit down with them and go, why would you do that? Yeah, there's no consensus in this country what constitutes discipline versus child abuse. Remember, in some communities, child abuse is beating your kids with a belt. In others, it's forcing them to drink a domestic Beaujolais. I mean, child abuse is absolutely definitional depending on the group and society you live in. I went to school where the nuns wrapped you on the hands with rulers. and Sister you know. Margaret Mary, I, I had her too. Did you have her too? You can't even yeah. bend your fingers anymore, can you, Rick? <laughs> <laughs> I'm crippled here. Yeah. Joe, take your belt off and go meet me in the cloakroom. Right. <laughs> Sister Mary Thomas. I do also tell the parents that this is not going to be covered by your insurance. These tests are expensive. You need to understand that you will be billed for these. Mm. I think you need to have a level playing field and just give them, lay it out there. But no big surprise, it's a $500 test we just ordered. We're wandering a little bit. We need to get back to Carrie's expertise on sexual abuse. No, here. I acknowledge that was a wandering. I called it a little deviation. <laughs> yeah. Well, but that's important. It, has, it feeds so. into patient rights. Yeah, Carrie yeah. says it's okay. That's right. Leave me alone. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Stop picking on me. Yeah, right. All right, we're moving down the list here. Now it's time for the exam. Okay, note the vital signs, the general state and demeanor of the kid. Nobody's going to argue with that. Note oral, abdominal, and anal general findings. And this is for all suspected abuse. So if this is, kid was cigarette burn or beaten up or something like that, and would you agree with that, Carrie? You still have to look at the anal genital region as part of a sexual abuse exam. And for both males and females. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And you're not going to disagree, are you? No, I'm not. Head to toe <laughs> assessment. So right now. <laughs> head, head to toe assessment is part of my assessment as well. What I don't like is if this person is potentially going to visit a sexual assault examiner and the emergency department physician or the doctor's office physician has gotten into my territory Messed before I you. do. <laughs> well, hopefully there is skill involved, but on the other hand, there are a lot of doctors that freak out. You mentioned this early, Dr. Bucata. They freak out at the prospect of being faced with a sexual abuse or a sexual assault case, and they want that patient out of their office as soon as possible. So they'll call the police. Maybe they won't. Maybe they'll just say, go over to St. Mary's Hospital. So what I like to do is I like to call them up afterwards and rattle their cage and say, do you know there's a penalty for failure to report? 
a child abuse situation. Depending on what state you're in, all 50 states have child abuse mandates. But sexual assault, even Utah. So if that physician, even though my teeth are a little clenched, I will give them a friendly reminder that in California that could be a six-month jail term or a $1,000 fine. What are you particularly ticked off about though when they're doing that? If they're going to do an examination and they're going to be manipulating and using traction and looking at that area, they can actually cause findings. Some findings that I'm going to be looking at might not be sexual assault findings. They might be a medical finding. There might be a discharge. There might be something that causes that tissue to be friable. And simply by using traction and separation and looking at that tissue, that can actually... We saw a demonstration of Carrie's colposcope, and you can see that we saw her fingerprints magnified to about a foot across. And and you can envision why you could see tiny little things that the doctor may have induced, which because the magnification was extraordinary. But with that specific scenario of the doc in his office or her office freaking out and sending the patient away to the ER. That was the specific question I had. What would you want them to do? Call you directly? Call the police? If they suspect that there's an abuse situation, they're mandated reporter to notify authorities in this state. So Before they transfer the patient, whatever, assuming the patient's not sick and doesn't need to go somewhere. Right, so don't look at that area if that's the allegation. Carrie, are things changing with regard to photographing lesions? I mean, we have cameras that we keep because, you know, somebody always comes in who's been beaten up And we want to capture that moment at that point in time because the court date may not be for five months. Who knows? Right. And that's really important. And so should we still be photographing as we've done before? That's coming up. So you jumped ahead too. Lesions. I like to use that. Let me ask you all. Lesions. I like to use that term referring to a medical finding as opposed to a finding or an injury. Is that cool with you all? A lesion is good. You're the I like lesion well, as a medical to finding. An ichymosis does not imply that it was traumatic. It could have exactly been spontaneous. Right. You know, you can have a break of blood vessel and have a ichymosis. The method by which the ichymosis was generated is not implied. Well, and there's purpura that comes from medical conditions, yes. and so I don't even like low, to use that pain. word at all. Moving on, so basically we're doing the sexual exam. We've got the vital signs. They said note the oral, abdominal, anal, general finding. We got that. Findings must be noted in the context of the patient's position during the exam. So you gave an example here. A healed hymenal transection is noted at the 6 o'clock position in the supine lithotomy position. Are you okay with that, Gary? Being kind of technical about exactly where this was and how you saw it. and Are you all right with that? You're thinking. Well, I have no problem with the statement as an example. I want to see if it's really a healed hymenal transection and how you came about that. No. Uh, okay, well, this is really about describing where it was. That's so why I was... Don't back off on your I know, that's why now. I was okay. trying to do that. Skin lesions are related and unrelated to the injury, should be noted. Related and unrelated. You're already assuming you know how to tell the difference. Exactly. We're talking about locations, measurements, color, pattern, and presence of tenderness or swelling. Looking for marks suggestive of implements, looped cords, belts, buckles, etc. The condition of the mouth, the teeth, and frenulum tears. Frenulum tears are supposedly a sign of like some kind of prior. You don't have a frenulum. It was torn. That tissue bridge is not there anymore. But I don't know that you can honestly say very much about that in terms of causality. Look for bite marks. Here we go with the photograph. Photograph with a measure scale in the field and name a medical record number. Are you okay with that? Some of this stuff I'm okay with. Some of it I'm not. 
depends on what the allegation is. Photographs can never hurt. We started in the olden days taking photographs of the Cuban eye. I don't see why there, you can't take a photograph of anything. Usually when you enter the hospital and sign that paper, it says something about imaging. And that was always the out to be able to take photographs. If you don't, then create another little consent that says, if I find anything, can I take a photograph of it? Because domestic violence cases and other cases where this is exigent and it might be lost. Again, we don't know what these things mean and what they are and when they happened or who we can attribute them to. So one of my powers as a defense person is I'm bringing up these very questions. So you want to look and you want to do a good thing. You want to look for patterned injuries, which is the loops, cords, belts, and all that stuff. And you want to maybe take a note of any scars or injury patterns. But if somebody comes in and tattoos, that's something I take a picture of too, those don't have any impact on or significance on the injury. They're just showing that things happen. If a kid comes in with some sort of an injury, kids get injuries. They have bruises and they have these things. So the tunnel vision tempered with your suspicion would be the thing. And I'm always in good with photography. We don't measure with a scale vaginal injuries or genital injuries, but you certainly, if you avoid the fingertip... (laughs) description you can say it's two centimeters or three millimeters contusion this size contusion that seemed to fit the fist of the parent that was sitting out in the waiting room yeah those kind of things that are suggestive you want to avoid but you certainly can in fact i have little sticky rulers and you can buy them very inexpensively and if photography is to take a photograph far enough away where you can get a location and then take a closer photograph and a photograph more closely and then stick on your ruler and take a few photographs there and you should just take a photograph that will give you a fair and reasonable interpretation of what that finding is. Well, that's is. a good tip because I, most of us amateurs would take a picture, but mm-hmm. basically you're taking think, take a series of pictures closer and closer so that you can de- identify the anatomy and the location, and then you can drill in a little bit in terms of that. Right. So if I take a picture of a bruise, I don't know if it's on a leg or an arm right, or right, an right. abdomen. So right. you want to get some sort of a location identity, and then you can take photographs of that. You are full of these useful little tips here. Mm-hmm. Well, while we're doing useful little tips and I know we don't want to run out of tape here I want to ask a couple of questions of you of what are we doing now or what are we advising with regard to now that the exam has been done and the kit's been put together what then where does everything go are we going to talk about the chain of evidence the signing of documents is that all still the same that we need to have signed off on everything that we've done Once you have your kit, there should be some mechanism for chain of custody. And depending on what happens in your state, someone will be receiving that. Now, if your hospital is going to maintain that evidence, you can have mechanisms in place for a sexual assault, for instance, that says, we will keep your kit for 90 days. And once 90 days are over, you'll be notified that that's happening if you choose not to press charges. In California, we're mandated reporters. And my kits, for instance, law enforcement will come in and pick them up when I'm finished. I'll give them a phone call and then they'll come in and get it. And there's a lot of issues now about law enforcement clearly is going to maintain the chain of custody or if you have some form that you use about the kits that sit on the shelves and are not analyzed. But actually, if 90 five or more percent of those kits are consenting, not so much, consent cases, all right? 
He says he was there. She says he was there. So we don't need DNA for that case. The only exception might be if he's a serial, I met you in a bar kind of a guy. But on the other hand, there are certain cases, stranger assaults, for instance, which are the most rare. Those would like to go ahead in line for analysis. And we have a new, that's not so new, it came about in about 2003 from a physician in San Diego who added a classification of brief encounter. So it separates the statisticians using quotes. Statisticians that say this is a stranger assault because we did talk that there are some people that are not forthcoming who immediately say it was a stranger. And so that separates the stranger assaults from the known assaults and says the brief encounter is I met you in a bar, I played pool with you, we danced, we had a good time, we spent six, seven, eight hours together and now something untoward happened. So that's going to separate that out for those people who like status. But once you've completed the kit and you've dried it in your dryer and they're all packaged and labeled correctly, then there should be some mechanism for maintaining the chain of custody until it gets to the crime lab. Well, Greg's finished and sealed up the envelope, but I'm still on the general examination here. Okay. Now, now remember, the general exam is part of the abuse screen for everybody, independent of whether it's sexual or not. They suggest in this paper making specific references to the state of the penis, vulva, and anus. Rather than saying general exam is normal, they would like you to suggest I examine specifically these areas that they were normal in my professional opinion. Note whether any lab or x-rays are pending and whether they're final or preliminary interpretations. And now we get into the part that you're going to love, Carrie. You're documenting the assessment in clear language. Avoid, rule out, or alleged to prevent ambiguity in the legal setting. I don't have a problem with rule out or alleged. Oh, we're getting to the good part yet, though. We, that's not the. Well, let's back up one second and talk about specific reference to the state of the penis, vulva, and anus. What do you suggest? In my professional opinion, these were three areas were examined and are normal. Within normal limits is fine with me. Okay. All right. Certainly the rule out, nobody likes rule out. No, even the billing and coding people don't like the word rule out no? anymore. No, okay. The physician's opinion regarding the plausibility of the injury occurring via the stated mechanism should be clearly stated. Danger, danger. Mm. <laughs> yes, I would think so. <laughs> We're getting into the very, very problematic parts of what they want you to do. In the sexual assault exam, they want you to say, this examination revealed normal anogenital findings that neither confirm nor refute a child's clear disclosure of sexual abuse. Are Who are you trying to help by writing that down? I'm uh, fine help. with normal anogenital findings, period. We were told, we used to be told and is it and the bottom of the forms it would say are these findings consistent with sexual well, assault and you were told to write yes every time because a normal exam was consistent with sexual assault and an abnormal exam was consistent with sexual assault is that what they're getting at you should where always, are you from are you from here i'm from here i trained in this fine country okay country. this is trained one of at the, ucla you know here's one of the big problems <laughs> and i guess i'm exposing myself here um put your clothes back on i know i know <laughs> our forms we are the pioneer in having a state protocol and having state forms. And people, I've noticed since coming in on the bottom rung of this ladder that all over the United States, people are copying, and I don't say copying, using our forms and our protocols to make their own. But after years of this, I think our forms are very biased and are written towards the stranger violent assault that we hardly ever see. And the wording in our forms is very suggestive, and we're one of the only 
places in the United States that has anything that asks us to draw a conclusion at the end of the examination. And if you look at a couple of the pages in the form, it says to document your assault-related findings. I have whiteout. Hmm. I took that off. I don't know if they're assault-related findings. I don't know if there was an assault. I can write my findings for you, but I can't write my assault-related findings. So I whited that out. Then I found at the end that the little box that you're speaking of is asks where the findings are consistent with the history or the findings are inconsistent with the history. And one of the problems with that is you are going to write consistent with the history 99.99999% of the time because, number one, we have no other frame of reference. Number two... What else are you going to say? So I started adding boxes. When I have a drunk 15-year-old that comes in and says, gee, I don't know what happened, but I went out drinking with my friends and I woke up feeling maybe like something happened. Well, I don't have a history. So I added a box that said unknown history. And then I have other situations where people tell me stories that are inconclusive. So I added a box. Well, the exposure comes that I finally eliminated that box because it's not fair to ask me that. And especially when you're adding these kind of verbiage, which is still on the 925 form, the child form. So I took that box off and I don't answer that. I used to just cross it out. Since then I also add some things to my form. For instance, there's nothing about whether a speculum exam was done, so I added that. There's nothing about translating or what language the patient was used. I add a couple of diagrams. I added a submental view and things like that. It could happen, but most people don't use chicken to try and kill their victims. It's strangulation. It's not choking. Suppose that could happen. But it's, So I took choking off and I tried to make my form that I use as objective as possible. And so that is one of the issues because what happens is that people have come to the conclusion of their examination. The law enforcement officer comes to pick it up and they say, well, what did you find? And he said, well, I checked this box on the form that says it's consistent with the history. So the police go dancing out the door thinking that the nurse said it was consistent with a sexual assault because the history is that of a sexual assault. So if I'm going to use that form and I'm going to check that box and say that it's consistent with the history, I'm also going to tell my law enforcement officer that it's also consistent with other things as well. This gets back to what maybe I should have brought up at the beginning, which is the philosophy of what the heck are we trying to do here? So it seems to me that the philosophy is, and I need these philosophical ways of thinking about it because we've gone through too many specifics. So the philosophy here is to be open-ended in the history, open-ended in the physical exam, and the experts will work out what's going on in the courtrooms. And they'll use my piece of paper to say, yes, there was a bruise here, and yes, there was something here. But me trying to work out whether everything's consistent with everything else and what's going on, and I'm not trying to try the case in the emergency department when I'm examining this patient. I'm just trying to gather some information in an open-ended fashion and let you experts work it out later. I think that's the point, that what we are is a tool of the system to collect data and information. There are a lot of judgments we can't draw because we don't have everything. When we're in the department, we don't know what's going on. What we want to is be the objective gatherer of materials to the best of our ability so that we're not for one side or the other. Although, to be fair, what if the child made it very, very, very clear to you in no uncertain terms that they were sexually abused? Then that then goes down as history. Yes, right. And so the evaluation is part history and part physical. And this statement then, in that case, 
normal anal general findings that neither confirm nor refute a child's clear disclosure of sexual abuse. Would it be improper for you to say that there was a clear disclosure of sexual abuse if, in fact, there was a clear disclosure of sexual abuse? As history. Yes. As, as history. history. And we kind of skipped over something that someone said before about saying, should we write the child stated or someone stated. Don't forget that there are quotation marks. And you brought up earlier that these people can be coerced into saying things as a tool in somebody's game somewhere. So I had a case one time, the child said, Daddy put his thing on my thing. And that's all he could come up with. And if you ask him to push a little further, he said it hurt it. But he had no details. He had no something. I'm suspicious of that statement. Nevertheless, you could document child states, quotes, and whatever their statement might be. So in answering that question, I would say normal anal genital findings are within normal limits. But you don't need to write that neither confirms nor refutes a child disclosure. That sounds like you're trying to assist, saying, well, there was no findings, but there still could be something that happened. Well, we know that. Well, you don't need to write that. We know that. So just write what your findings are. And if there are quotes, then there are quotes. But I don't think anything is a clear disclosure. The child may make statements. The adult might make statements. There might be a whole lot of different things that go on as far as what the history is. And they should go down as history, not as fact. If there's a bruise, that's a fact. That's something you can see. There are things that are subjective, like tenderness, that you can't evaluate. That's a statement, a subjective statement by the patient. So then you're pretty much against all of these statements that link findings with, as an example, the third one here, medical findings are diagnostic of trauma or sexual contact. Are you okay with that? Well, here's where these came from. There's a wonderful doctor called Dr. Joyce Adams, and she started in the 90s, and she created what she used to call the Adams Scale. Now she doesn't like to call it that. It's the Adams Guidelines, and it was starting in the beginning when we were first starting to realize that the things that we might have known in the 70s aren't necessarily true now. So she created her scale and they were normal findings and determinant findings and very few now are diagnostic of trauma or diagnostic of sexual contact. So that's where some of these things come from. And I'm happy if somebody is indeterminate or nonspecific or however you want to outline that, but you can just say what you see. You see normal anogenital findings. You don't need to write a statement that says confirms or not. There might be some things that do require, I hope a lot of things require additional finding. Unless you've seen that child before, you don't know if this is new to them or not new to them. And there are conditions such as lichen sclerosis that can be confused with something and somebody could go what I call with the runaway train syndrome and say look at this horrible horrible injury and now everybody gets on the train and they take it all the way through and it's not an injury at all it's a medical finding. All right we're coming into the home stretch let me not belabor this but under the recommendations of this paper under non-sexual abuse there specifically here there are three comments consistent with the explanation provided and the child's developmental ability. Are you okay with that? Developmental ability means, you know, uh, this kid can't walk. How did it break a femur? You know, that kind of thing. That kind of scares me a little bit. I think there could be things that get overlooked and say, well, the parents said he was clumsy, so it's consistent with the explanation. And Well, they're trying for you to know something about what a child can be expected to do at this age, and that is inconsistent with what a child could be expected to do. And then there's the indeterminate and requires additional evaluation. And then finally, 
in this setting of abuse, inconsistent with the explanation provided in the child's developmental beauty. That's the broken ribs, the broken long bone fractures, and kids who can't walk. Understand that we do this every night with every person. They come in with an injury. We hear a story. Does it all fit? If it does, we don't pursue this as being an assault or not an assault or that sort of thing. Or Billy comes in, he's five, he fell off his bike and hit his forehead. I mean, I don't put them through the third degree about assault. You and I do this every day as a part of our living. It's when we come up with these other two levels that, you know, the story isn't right. And I think that after a few years doing this for a living, you hear stories that aren't right. And finally, there are those that it just ain't right, right off the top. Well, you know, the door, the one that's always giving people black eyes and always yeah, yeah, breaking yeah. ribs and hurting arms and stuff. That right. door the gets around. The one you walk into or just yeah. open in your face. And there are interesting things about those types of things that make you suspicious or not. And I hate to say that some of it is gut level, but some of it is. And one of the things that I have to overcome all the time is that for some reason, laceration has become very popular. Genital injuries are usually tears. And when I took my death investigation course in 97, there made definitions that really made sense to me. And a laceration is something that the jury associates with that kid that fell down and whacked his head and there's blood and they got to go to the doctor and get sutures. And usually with a laceration, it's a blunt force instrument, which the penis is not, by the way. And those findings usually have underlying findings of a bruising or even skeletal damage if it's hard enough. Whereas genital injuries are, I describe as tears because they're, the mechanism of injury is the stretching of the tissue beyond its capacity and there is lack of underlying injury. And those kind of tears will heal. So even a little terminology like that can give somebody a suggestion that something horrible has happened. But I think you're absolutely right. I think that there are certain things that you would not even ask for a further explanation and those kind of incidents. I know years of working in a PEDS emergency department at a county hospital, we saw stuff that was like, but there would be that case that would perk up the hair on the back of your neck and say, right. hmm, let me check into this a little further. So we're coming into the home stretch, and one of the things I wanted to know, because I haven't done this for a goodly while, is in the way of baseline studies in women who may have been sexually assaulted, we do a pregnancy test, we do a HIV test. Why do you do a pregnancy test? to see if they're pregnant at this time as they come in for their examination. Because you want to be able to provide them with prophylaxis medication. Well, yeah, we're just going to go into the testing first. So you agree on a pregnancy test? We can. HIV? I don't know that that needs to be routine. Hepatitis B? Of course, you're a doctor in an emergency facility, and you're my fallback. So that's not well, going to be... if one of the claims is, I didn't have hepatitis B now, and now I do... Or I didn't have HIV now, now three months later I do. Well, here's our recommendation. And even when we worked at the other hospital, we did it this way. Our baseline was urine pregnancy test. And the reason that we did that was to make sure that the patient wasn't pregnant so we could give them prophylaxis for sexually transmitted infections and give them plan B as uh, prophylaxis for pregnancy. Was it related to any causality issues about subsequent pregnancies or I guess not? Well, no. And actually most of the medications we give them are of no consequence. Yeah. And it doesn't anyway. help you. Just because even if there was a sexual assault today and then there was consensual sex the next day, you don't know they're pregnant for a week. You don't know whose it That's is. That's right. I mean, it so right, just, it's just it. one okay. of those things. Okay. And how many chances I want to cake. But we also are not doing testing for STIs. So I'm going to recommend that that patient goes for testing in two weeks. 
unless I see a, a what about discharge. Right now? right now, I don't. Pre-existing problem. Okay, pre-existing problem, and I see, which I often see, discharge and this and that, then I'm going to shorten my interval to less than two weeks. And there are programs, uh, California for one, there's a lot of programs that don't do routine STI testing at the time of the exam, which I agree with. There are schools of thoughts, and I've had uh, different discussions with people who think that that should absolutely be a part of the exam. But I separate the forensic and the medical, and they can well, go this is for follow-up. A gray zone, because what is forensic and what is medical kind of thing? We, well, we figure that out. That's right. And of course, I don't want anybody to think that as a nurse, I merely a technician who only pays attention to the forensic part of it. As any patient would come in for a hurt arm, you're still going to do your head to toe evaluation for that patient. And I'm going to do the same thing too. But if that patient says, geez, the reason that I came in here really is because I'm worried that I have an STI and I'm worried that he might have made me pregnant. Well, clearly we don't need police involvement for that. They can go to a medical place for that. So the lab testing as a routine only needs to incorporate a pregnancy test to see if they're pregnant prior so I can give them my Vantin and my azithromycin and my Plan B, although Plan B isn't going to affect an existing pregnancy anyway. So that's the only test. Excuse me. If that patient has had alcohol or drugs on board that may be integral in this particular case, then I'll draw a gray top. Now, I already do DUI checkpoints for the law enforcement agency here, so I have some tubes on hand, and if I want to draw something up until 12 hours, I'll do that. Between 12 and 24 hours is at my discretion. So you're suggesting that toxicology studies are optional based on the setting that whether you want to obtain these or not? Because what is the ER doctor going to do? Should he get a tox screen on everybody who comes in as part of the evidence base here? Is Well, I was drunk and my blood alcohol was 300 and this proves I was incapable of making a rational decision and this was not consensual. You're only going to have one chance to get this data. So do you want us to get tox screens or not? I think as anything else, we as medical professionals really have decision-making powers. And we have to judge things on a case-by-case basis on what you think is best for that particular patient. So depending on the scenario and the history that you're given, even if they're lying like dogs, the history that they're given is going to guide the examination. And in the case of a patient that is unconscious or has some history of being incapable at the time of the event, now I'm not talking about at the time of the exam, clearly, I'm talking about the time of the event, then I'm going to use my judgment. For example, if that patient says, well, I had so much to drink and I don't know if anything happened, then I'm going to collect my specimens according to my experience. So I'm going to collect around circumoral area, the neck area, the breasts, if they have a piercing in their navel, that might be attractive to a suspect. So I might collect a specimen there and then I'll do my internal and external genital specimens. And one of the things that is a little bit possessive of the forensic nurse is that our description of internal and external may be different than the general public. So from the hymen forward is external and from the hymen back is internal. Well, I guess I'm making reference to the fact that if we don't have somebody like you to do this and we're in JAPIP. No, you're not. You can take my online class. You can take any kind of a course that can educate you a little bit, especially if you're out in the boonies where they don't have sexual assault examiners. And more and more people in these areas are getting more interested 
and learning about it and whether or not they ever practice per se as a sexual assault examiner in an organized program I think things are changing there too. The way that the model was created and the multidisciplinary team and they call it, I don't even call them SART exams anymore. I call them a SANE exam because I don't have a district attorney and a police officer doing the exams. I'm doing the exams. Well, let me ask these doctors across the aisle here. Isn't it your belief that as part of these examinations, these patients are supposed to be tested for sexually transmitted infections right then and there. Isn't that our teaching? It it is our general approach to check. One of those things is also if if there's a positive gonorrhea test. It's pre-existing. It's a pre-existent condition. Right, that's all part of the evidence. So it may be part of it. When you talk about testing for drugs and things like that, I'm not sure why a drug test would be of importance after all. It may relate to capacity. It may, but the way we do drug testing, we'd never know that last night... (laughs) Even if we had a positive comeback for cocaine or something else, we have no way of saying whether they had capacity or didn't have capacity the night before. Well, let's make it simple. Is there a downside? Is there a downside to doing testing of drugs, STDs, pregnancy tests? I'm out of my league, but I have to do this thing. Yep. Shoot, I better do everything. There is so one I get downside. swabs for chlamydia and GC, and I do a pregnancy test. I get an HIV test, and That's I get an question. alcohol. Have I done something bad by doing that? No. More is less. More is... No, wait. <laughs> more, more is more. More. <laughs> more is more. More is expensive. More, <laughs> more is okay. More. Uh-huh. more is expensive. I will give you the defense attorney's line here, and that is you're trying them with things which aren't related to the case. Just because a young woman has a drug in her system doesn't mean that she ought to be raped. Are you trying to paint something for the jury? I want to create as much dispassionate evidence as I can. I'm not taking anybody's side. But I don't want somebody to say, had doctor, had you only done this test, it would have really helped us out a lot. That's the fear. Because we're out of our league here, most of the people listening to this are going to be out of their league. It's like, how can I not screw this up? So is it a fence to not screwing this up, doing more of these than doing less? Because I'm only going to get one chance. My philosophy is the testing for sexually transmitted infections is not going to make any difference in a sexual assault case at the time of the examination, because that particular suspect if there was something is not going to show up now our window of opportunity used to be 72 but we increased it several years ago to 96 hours for an acute exam and then we recommend that they go to their favorite health center their favorite physician and have a checkup for sexually transmitted infections in two weeks some of the programs is that who's paying for the exams and what are they paying for and our police departments in Los Angeles County we have a standard rate for reimbursement and they pay for the forensic aspect the head-to-toe assessment all the things that I do as a good nurse they don't pay for the medical testing and they don't pay for any of the extraneous things that are going to happen now there is a mechanism in place they can possibly be eligible to apply for victims of crime compensation if they have out-of-pocket expenses but as far as the absolute forensic part of that kind of examination the STI testing is not necessary If there is a case where the person says, I know that he is an IV drug user and he actually filled up a syringe with blood and jabbed it into my leg, in that case I would send them straight away to an emergency department for a screening for HIV. And if their concern is hepatitis and their concern is all of that stuff, then I'm going to send them to a medical facility where they can have that done, not necessarily on an emergent basis, but if that's their concern, I want to meet the needs of the patient by making sure their concerns are addressed. 
but as far as part of the forensic examination, I don't do testing for anything. And update me on the what the prophylactic needs are these days. Well, different strokes for different folks. The CDC has some certain recommendations, and then sometimes that has to do with locale as well. And California has had some fluoroquinolone-resistant strains. Actually, I think that's kind of getting more and more across the boards, but I know that we changed our medications a few times because of that. Right now I'm giving Vantin 400 milligrams, azithromycin 1 gram, some programs give metronidazole, and this is my fifth program. In two of them, we gave metronidazole, but you don't give it to anybody who's had alcohol on board, and metronidazole is your most likely drug for the person to throw up. I don't want my patients throwing up. We used to have a joke that we would give the metronidazole exactly 30 minutes before discharge so we could boot them out the door and they could throw up elsewhere. But that risk is meaning that if that patient throws up, then they're going to throw up the azithromycin and the Vantin and the Plan B. So I don't give metronidazole as a routine. So my drugs include Plan B, Rosefin is in the mix as well, but I don't like to give my patients shots. Sure. I'm already okay. poking them for blood card. We do a patient's own reference sample by either a buckle swab, but I prefer we do a little, it's like an FTA card, and you put three drops of blood on it, and that's a blood card. I'll show that to you before you go. What and about viral prophylaxis, HIV, hepatitis? Do you do any... Thing with it? I do not. And again, that can be something that can be addressed by their personal physician or Planned Parenthood or public health center, wherever they want to go, and we can address it that way. Because we know the chance from a sexual assault HIV positive transfer is pretty low. So uh, less than 0 0.04, says lady who doesn't like statistics. <laughs> but yeah, the fact so that if matter. it's a really high risk case, though, you do have a time window, and we think it's true that time is sort of the killing of bugs. So, uh, so in our circumstance, I guess again, what you were saying before is the most important thing: weigh up the case in front of you. What's really going on here? Risks, benefits. And so you don't have to give it to everybody. No, but if the patient gives a clear history of knowing about right. that patient, then I'll just say, go on down to the hospital and tell them, I'll call the hospital for them and tell them that you're coming to do a screening for HIV. Mm -hmm. But any STI right. for a one-time encounter is low, low, low. low. Mm -hmm. But you do have patients that, for some unknown reason, have been with that person either through a spousal or a partnership relationship that's been ongoing something or something. And my more concern or less concerned about that person because they've maintained that relationship. But a case-by-case -case basis would tell me what to do. I can tell you right now that I don't think, I can't ever remember sending a patient that I felt needed an immediate right now HIV screen. And the other thing I can't remember, I can remember one patient that had a severe enough tear, vaginal tear, then I sent them to the emergency department and the doctor sutured them. And that happened to be a consensual case, by the way. I had another case where I felt that maybe they should have an evaluation by ED. And that doctor chose not to do any suturing or whatever. But actually, my most severe injury, I believe, was that uh, consensual case. So we're not going to see a lot of injuries. And in children, we're not probably going to see any injuries. Remember, we have to look through the eyes of the suspect. I know that can be unpleasant, but they don't want to do things in front of other people or where they think they can get caught and they're going to try not to leave any findings. And the stranger assault is the most rare 
and they probably would have the least care about whether they injured that patient or left any injuries. And we have to be aware of conditions that look like, mimic, or can be caused by non-sexual contact as well. Well, I think our tape is just about up. I want to really thank you for your mm. expertise. This was terrific. This was an hour well spent because I didn't know a lot of this stuff. Guys, anything? I was Nothing. just going to say I'm stunned that there are things you don't know and there are things you know and then there are things you think you know that you don't know and this was one of those. I thought I knew and I didn't know. So thank you. Now I know. Thank yep. you. And we thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Excellent. We don't usually on Wine of the Month talk about a concoction and I already know that the purists are going to get upset and angry and all that sort of thing. But if you want to serve something pleasant around the pool, you're going to take Muscato d'Asti. And what you do, it's almost in the family with the Astus Bumbantes. And you take a bottle of that, put a little 7-Up in it, add limes and lemons, a little 43 liqueur, which is a Spanish liqueur, and you have a beautiful white sangria. Now, Rick, you weren't a believer, but we made one of these before the tape. What do you think? I think it was very cool. I've never had white sangria, and I liked it very much. Melvis, did you, what did you think? No, I, um, I didn't have any of these sangria because I'm a little tired, and so I'm having a little thing called Red Bull. Do you like Red Bull? I like Red I've Bull. Red Bull's good. <laughs> you should try Red Bull. Red Bull's great. I've never had a Red Bull. Cut <laughs> him off. He's <laughs> done with his does Red it Bull. with the defibrillator? Yes. <laughs> Red Bull is good. All right, so that's it, basically. Moscato Diasti or something to that. Uh, Moscato Diasti. I think we're signing off. Is that it, gentlemen? That is it for June. RS Management Monthly. Goodbye now. Bye. Oh, boy.